0: we set. we ready to get started. All right. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. I hope uh, you enjoyed your week off. <laughs> did you miss me? Um, yes, we did take a week off, but we're back. Um, today, we're going to be looking, we're going to finish Deuteronomy 2, and we're going to move into chapter 3. We're still in the historical prologue section of the covenant, the Deuteronomic the Deuteronomic covenant. And as we talked about before, this is the, the national charter of Israel, so to speak. This is a covenant treaty, the whole book. And we're in the part of it that like so many of those covenants that were made in the second millennium BC, ancient Near East, is the part that's giving the backstory that leads up to the next part of the covenant which will be the stipulations and what is required of the vassal if they want to be faithful to their suzerain, their king. So God is the king, God's the suzerain, Israel's the vassal. And so this is how this covenant is unfolding. And we're going to be talking about, there's going to be an an overview of some battles and some uh, Israel facing insurmountable odds. So Israel, uh, remember they came out of Egypt. They did not come out as a mighty force. They did not even come out as a homogenous unit. They came out as a mixed multitude, most of them descendants of the family of Israel, but a lot of them not, including people like Caleb and his family, and even some Egyptians that came out with them. uh, Those who recognized the covenant God and his power and said, I want to be on that team. That's that's the, the, the substance of Old Testament faith. Up to this point is uh, that's the one true God, and where He goes, that's where I want to go. And we'll see that later throughout the historical books. People like um, Ruth, people like Rahab, they'll make that commitment, and they they want to be on Team Yahweh, (laughs) so to speak, because that's the winning team, and that's the the covenant faithful team. So God's going to be with them. He's going to provide for them. And, and it's kind of just uh, as an aside, so we're going to be talking about some of the, the battles that it went in. So last week I was up in New York and it was actually pretty big. It was a surprise completely, but I actually got my black belt in jujitsu. And yeah, it was super unexpected. Now, now I just want to explain for a second because the Dojo, part of our ministry is teaching uh, I teach jiu-jitsu to kids, the refugee, immigrant, lower-income kids here in Charlotte, but um, there's a lot of black belts that you can get, like if you do karate or taekwondo or any of these, and I actually have some other ones from other styles, but, but a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is really hard to get. Um, it took me just under 12 years wow. to do it. Yeah, you can do two or three PhDs <laughs> in the time that it takes to get a black belt, um, but I, and I was given it at... <clears throat> the place where I was given the Henzo Gracie Academy in Manhattan, like right beside Madison Square Garden, is considered one of the most prestigious jujitsu schools in the world. So I was really blown away. I was thinking I was about a year or two still to go. But I'd started in my late 20s, and I said, by the time I'm 40, I want to be close to a black belt. Um, I'll turn 40 in July. So it was a really cool thing. But my instructor engraved Unbeknownst to me, it was a total surprise. There was a video online. I was completely shocked. Um, but he engraved, or he had embroidered on it, Proverbs 30, 30. And it says, um, a lion mighty among beasts who turns back from no one or turns away from no one. And it, it's kind of cool because our jujitsu logo in, from this academy is the lion. And so that was really neat. It was really, really touching. But the cool thing about this is um, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, Going from a in jujitsu, you start off as a white belt, and there's only five, white, blue, purple, brown, black. And each one of those takes about two to three years per belt level. And so there's a lot of people quit, usually at blue belt. Probably 90% of the people that quit quit at that second belt. But there's a lot of feeling of that in the wilderness, in the desert. You know, I'm doing this forever. I'm getting beat up every week. you know, the ups and downs, highs and lows, and there's, it's applicable to spiritual life and to our daily lives as well. Um, the, the, the saying that, that Henzo Gracie, who we're all under, my instructor and me and everybody, it says, um, getting a black belt's easy. Just don't die. <laughs> Just keep showing up and don't die, and eventually you have to get it. And the, but the point of that is that the idea of Perseverance. Like, you got to persevere every day, every day, every day. And if you go in thinking, all right, this is my goal, and look how far you are from it, then it's overwhelming, and you quit. And that's what a lot of people do. But if you go and say, okay, that's in the far future, but forget the goal. How can I be faithful today? How can I get a little bit better today? How can I do what God wants me to do in my little sphere of influence today? And then as you do that for 12 years in my case, you look back and you see how far you've come. And it ties into Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers that we looked at last year very, very well because that's what God wants Israel to do is to say, look where you started. You started as nothing. You were a rabble of slaves in the mightiest empire in the history of mankind up to this point. Look where you've come now deuteronomy is the call of they're on the plains of moab they're looking back at the past in order to give them the faith to go forward into the future because the goals are even greater in the future and so what god's doing is he's saying throughout this all it's been focus on me focus on me here's the covenant here's the commandments here's the law here's how you're going to live as my people you've already been redeemed it's isn't to get you saved This is how you live because you are saved, day by day by day. And when you face the obstacle, when you look to the future and you see the giants, you see the walled cities and the fortified encampments, know that I'm the one who brought you as far as I've brought you. So why do you think I would bring you this far and then abandon you? And that's the lesson. That's the lesson of the entire book, really, of Torah is Israel looking back in order to give them the faith needed for when they look forward, and it's really, really, really scary. And so that's what we look at today is in chapter 2, we're in verse 24. And again, Moses is recounting Israel's journey, how they got from down there in Egypt, almost to the promised land, but then because of unfaithfulness, they had to go back down into the wilderness until that generation died out after that generation died out then God said now you're ready let's go the new generation is on the march and they're gonna go up and they're gonna go up into what's called the Transjordan which is the other side of the Jordan River from what's today Israel and that's where they're going to encounter these people groups and we saw last week God said you're going to encounter Moabites and Edomites and Ammonites don't mess with them I have not given you their land We saw the last time we talked two weeks ago how God had given other people's land similar to how he's giving Israel its land. And that just gave us one of those hints and glimpses that God's at work bigger than just Israel, even in the pages of the Bible. But for Israel, he's saying, now, but go up. You're going to go up, and then you're going to go into the land. On the way, though, they are going to encounter opposition. And so this opposition, then, is what they're going to deal with, and we'll see how they deal with it here. Verse 24, uh, God's speaking to the Israelites. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, or look, I've given into your hand King Sian the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and the fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and tremble and be in anguish because of you. So there's some interesting thing. God's given the charge. He's saying, all right, go into battle. I've given you the land of this particular king, King Sihon, and his territory. But I am going to go ahead of you and put the fear and put the dread of you. And here is a, there's a couple of examples that, or a couple of points to pull out from this section that will help you in your biblical theology as a whole. First of all, there's biblical hyperbole. Remember, hyperbole is exaggeration. So when God says, I will begin to put terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. Well, were Eskimos afraid of Joshua and the Israelites? No. They hadn't even heard of him. You know, what people in Australia, Aborigines, no. Were the were the Chinese culture afraid? No, it's not that's not saying that. This is stock language in the Bible to describe something in grandiose terms, not for the purpose of misleading, but for the purpose of of providing even more encouragement and saying basically from the point of view of where you guys are, everybody you encounter, I've already taken care of. So all the nations under all under heaven, the word heaven and sky are the same, um, you know, earth and land, same word. So God is basically saying all the people you're going to encounter, I will prepare the way so that you overcome them. That's what he's saying. And so when you start to say, well, people just pick pick apart the Bible over things that are clearly hyperbole statements, especially in the prophets, especially in the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, Jesus engages in hyperbole a whole lot. You know, most of you do have your right hands and your right eye. You haven't gouged them out and you haven't cut them off because you know that Jesus was talking in hyperbole. They do that throughout scripture. So just be aware when people start attacking and picking apart the Bible or trying to go jump through hoops and do all kinds of crazy unscientific uh, theories to try to prove things in the Bible that were just prophetic hyperbole. So that's one point. It'll come up later, more in the later books of the Bible, but just whenever we encounter it, it's good to just tuck it away and realize. The second thing though, Theologically that's important about this is that, again, remember the tension that Deuteronomy has had us living in, where it says, see, I have given into your hand, King Si and the Amorite king uh, and his country, now begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. I've given it, you go take it. It's that divine uh, giving, divine sovereignty, human responsibility same thing you can't neglect either it's not i've given it to you so you don't have to do anything and if you work for it that means that you'll be able to boast so you better not work you should just receive just sit still and receive god doesn't say that his giving requires them to act in obedience so god may give you something but that giving may very well require you to do your part in the receiving of it doesn't mean you're earning it. Doesn't mean you're. Cl- you can't go, oh, look what I did. You know, no. It's clearly going to be God. Israel would get destroyed if they went up against King Sion and his armies by themselves. So they clearly can't say, we did it. But they have to do it. They have to step into the ring, they have to go into battle in order to receive what has already been given to them. And that's the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And theological systems on both sides will try to pull you to one or the other. And so just be aware, you know, hardcore determinism or pelagianism on the other side, like just be aware and say, no, no, it's both and. It's not either or. And that's what we'll see. So, um, and we'll see this start to happen actually in Joshua chapter 2 when Rahab, when they go to Rahab, the first city they encounter And the spies go into Rahab and she hides them and she says, terror and fear of you guys have swept this entire city. That'll be confirmed in Joshua 2, verse 9. Uh, And so when we get there, you'll see that this is actually happening. But God's promising in advance as part of this historical prologue. So verse 26, from the desert of Kedamoth I sent messengers to to Sion king of Heshbon offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country We'll stay on the main road. We won't turn aside to the right or the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. In other words, we're not going to take it. We're not going to raid you. Just let us pass through on foot. As the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us. You know, we've already done this. so We're trustworthy. Until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But King Sihon, King of Ashpom refused to let us pass. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. This is a direct callback to Exodus. Those of you that were here four years ago, three years ago, when we did Exodus, Pharaoh, there was a genuine offer. Hey, here's your chance. Let us pass through. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and they didn't. Again, people will jump on this and they'll say, oh, well, see, it's, it's not King Sion's fault. You know, he, God hardened his heart. He couldn't say no. He couldn't, Pharaoh's the example. This is language calling back to Pharaoh. And remember when we looked at Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh's heart became hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All of those things are spoken of in the same way because God is sovereign even over genuine free choices of people. So to describe this as God hardening his heart does not absolve Sion of any responsibility because he had been as we read in the account when this actually happened in numbers 21 in opposition to Israel. And so what Moses is saying is is looking back through the eyes of history and saying, yeah, this is none of this caught God by surprise. This is all part of his plan and it was to give the uh, to demonstrate God's power and the glory of taking this group of you know, former slaves, and giving them victory over this mighty army now, just like he had done over is over Egypt's army, and so he goes on to say, <clears throat> verse thirty-one: The Lord said to me, "See, I've begun to deliver Sion and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land." There's that beautiful description of that that uh, tension between I've given, now you begin. 32, when Sian and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Yahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. At the time, we took all his towns and haremed them. NIV will say completely destroy. I think ESV or others may say dedicate entirely or devoted to destruction or uh, put under the ban or something like that. This is a verb. We've looked at this briefly back in Exodus. But this is going to come to play in this Deuteronomy, but especially in Joshua, this idea of harem. Harem was a practice in the ancient Near East that when you took a city, you destroyed that city, making it uninhabitable. And that was symbolically giving it over, dedicating it to your God. And this was not something that Israel invented or or came up with. All of the cities, all of the ancient Near East peoples would do this. It meant making it unusable for any other purpose than the gods. And usually that was done by basically doing to it what you do to a whole burnt offering. You remember the offerings, the sacrifices? You could have one sacrifice that you'd offer a part of it. That would be... You'd offer that to the God, but then you would keep and eat the rest, or you'd share it, or the priest would get it, or something like that. But there were some offerings, the whole burnt offering, all of it was entirely given to God, and none of it for human use. That's the concept theologically of the verb haram, which means to dedicate entirely to God. Now, how that plays out when it's from a sacrifice to in a battle or in a military setting is different. Because some of the things can be burned up and destroyed. Cities, houses, you know, soldiers, people, all that. Other things can't be, like metal implements or things. And so those then are dedicated to the Lord by being given to the service of the tabernacle or the temple or whatever. The point of karam is when it's enacted, it's removing something from use in the human sphere and symbolically dedicating it to God. Now, that's the ancient Near East ethic. Well, yes, but it doesn't capture the why it's being destroyed. The why it's being destroyed is important. It's being destroyed in order that humans not have use of it in the sphere of the profane or the normal. Remember in Leviticus, there's the holy and then there's the profane or the holy and the common. Harem is taking something from the realm of the common and placing it into the realm of the holy. And there's different ways of doing it, but one of the ways, like a burnt offering, is turning it into smoke or destroying it completely. So there's a challenge when we come to these harem passages on, one, what's the purpose of it? Because it seems incredibly wasteful. Two, what's the motivation of it? Because when reading it on a surface reading, it seems pretty barbaric. Three, how prevalent was it? How normal was it? Did it follow the rules of war in the ancient Near East? and and it did but today it would be prosecuted as a war crime and then the fourth one is and this is the one that doesn't get as much consideration but we'll talk about this more in the coming chapters when we deal with harem passages is the language of harem is often again technical terminology that is not literal in its scope it's not when there will be passages and and this is this will stretch people the most because you're used to saying, well, wait, the Bible says what it says and should mean what it means. Yes. But there are phrases and figures of speech that are used in the Bible to denote a general reality. But within that general reality, there are exceptions. We know this is the case with harem passages because we know that later the Bible will talk about Israel hareming these people groups, totally destroying, totally wiping out, totally driving out. Joshua will use that language everywhere. Then in the very next book in Judges, it'll say, now, here's what happened to the people that Israel did not drive out. The descendants of those people, the ones who remained in the land. There are always exceptions to the language that's universal when it comes to things like harem and military endeavors. Another case in point, wipe out Jericho, completely destroy Jericho. The city, all that was in it was destroyed. It was the walls down, people went in, it was all devoted. Rahab and all who were in her house were saved. There's the exceptions to the general rule. So when you come to the harem passages, the language is intentionally ratcheted up. And this is in other ancient Near East accounts. I'll give you a book, a resource or two if you want to know more on this. Look at There's a book by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? That's the first one. And then the other book that he and Matthew Flanagan co-authored called Did God Command Genocide? Two books. They dig deep into the language of harem, looking at other ancient Near Eastern battle accounts, looking at other biblical examples, and they basically come to the conclusion, language of Haram, where it says the phrase, left nothing alive, men, women, or children. That's a stock phrase. And it is not ever read by the people in that time as a literal description. Rather, it's like when we say, man, the Panthers crushed the Falcons last week, or the Hornets destroyed the bulls in that game, right? We use that terminology, but we don't mean that it was destroyed. We mean a very specific, right? So it's similar to that, but in the realm of warfare or in the realm of military, um, military conquest language which is a genre of writing in the ancient Near East. We'll have a lot more on that when we get to Joshua. But I want to finish up this account real quick before we go. Um, So verse 34, At that time we took all his towns and harem, completely destroyed them. Men, women, and children. That's the phrase. Completely destroyed men, women, and children. That's the stock phrase that describes harem warfare. We left no survivors. But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured, we carried off for ourselves. Now, normally this would not be permitted, but this was not a case of conquest. This was a case of defending against an aggressor. And that's a huge difference. Israel And God will set the rules of this later in Deuteronomy. When you go, you only attack who I tell you to. But if somebody comes and attacks you, then you follow these rules. They're they're slightly different, but it's important. Um, Verse 36... From Aurora on the rim of the Arnon Godge and from the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. This is important because the spies of the previous generation had said specifically, we can't take the land. The cities are mighty, fortified, and too strong for us. Remember that. That's what disqualified that generation. Now, this new generation that went in and actually doing it, they're seeing with God's help, No, they're not. And he goes to say, um, verse 37, but in accordance with the command of the Lord our God, you did not encroach on any land of the Ammonites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok, nor all around the towns and the hills. God said, the Ammonites, that's their land. Leave them alone. This is just Sian and his people, the ones that have attacked. And then it goes into chapter 3. Next, we turned and went up along the road towards Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle at Edri. So Sian and Og were the two big warlords of this region of the Transjordan. The Lord said to me, do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sian, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon." So the Lord our God, this is all in Numbers 21. The Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We str- Again, the language, we struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time, we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Oak's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We, Kherom, completely destroyed them, as we had done, King Sion of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. So at that time, we took from these two kings of the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. That's that mountain way up in what's today the Golan Heights. Uh, Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians. Amorites call it Sinir. We took all the towns on the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salica and Edri, towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. And then a little parenthetical note, only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephites. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. It's still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. This is just a little side note that's letting Israel know, hey, this is not just some petty person. This is not just some little you know, group of cities. This is, this is a people group who were led by an incredibly feared warlord, king Og, And he was the last of these Rephites. We read about them two weeks ago. That term, it's not a specific ethnic term. It's used to describe the spirits of dead warriors later in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, or in the Prophets. Um, That term, Rephaim, it's used to describe or, or connote like ancient mighty ones of old. And in the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated as gigantes with giants either giant in actual stature or giant in reputation of might. And it goes on to say, this is the og whose bed or sarcophagus, the word's the same. It could be bed, sarcophagus, or like a divan, a, a couch, a, a, what somebody reclines on that a king gets carried around on. It can mean any of those three. And it was made of either iron or basalt, basalt whatever the stone is. <laughs> those words are the same as well. So the, whatever it's describing, whether it's describing his royal you know, couch that he's carried around on, 13 by 6 is pretty big. If it's describing his bed he slept in, that's like a double king-sized bed. And if it's describing his sarcophagus, the thing that his tomb is in, then that's a royal tomb, the royal sarcophagus of a mighty person. Regardless of how it's translated or what it's meaning, the image is this was a big bad man who ruled 60 fortifications and unwalled villages, and this rabble of slaves marching up out of the desert completely destroyed him. That's the message that God's getting across. They completely destroyed him. No military training, no weapons. Even by David's time, Israel will hardly have any weapons. Um, Nothing but going, marching out in obedience to God's promise. God does the fighting. Now, Israel fights. He fights through them, but he's the one that's giving the victory. And the note here is parenthetical because it's saying this would have been added later at the time after Deuteronomy was compiled for the most part and was said, you know, Og's, Og, King Og, the, the boogeyman, the Rephaite, the mighty one of old, that guy, the one whose bed is on display in Rabba, which is modern day Jordan, Amman, um, that's the guy. That's who God gave you victory over. So, again, we'll finish chapter 3 next week because now Moses is going to jump to what happened in Numbers 32. He's going to talk about in this historical prologue how then that part of the land, the Transjordan, was divided among the tribes, how Joshua was commissioned to lead Israel into the land, and how Moses was uh, heartbreakingly denied that privilege and what God gave him instead, which involves a little bit of a wordplay and some humor, some dark humor, but some humor nonetheless. Um, because remember the setting, Israel is on the plains of Moab, deserts that way, north Jordan, uh, uh, modern day Syria, Lebanon, all that would be that way, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, that way. What we know of as Israel, that way. So they're looking at the land. There's a river, there's dead sea, Sea of Galilee. Jordan River. So once again, just like they came out of Egypt through crossing a body of water, they're going to have to enter into the land crossing a body of water. But that's where they're camped. And Moses is turning to the people and he's saying, hey guys, before we go there, let's regroup. And let me tell you why we're doing this once again, because your parents didn't get it. So this is the second, this is the deuteronomos, the second law, the second giving of the law. And that's where we are. So we'll finish the historical prologue next week, and then we'll move into the stipulations, what's required of Israel being part of these people. So come back next week. There's plenty of food. There's some amazing stew left if you want some. Otherwise, we'll see you next Tuesday.